welcome back to your favorite holiday leftover. Beethoven walks into a bar. Happy New Year, Jason. Happy New Year, Mike. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Stephanie. (laughs) So excited to see you guys. My name is Stephanie. I am the Director of Education with the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Mike, Principal Flute with the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Jason, the Associate Conductor. Well, guys, today we are kicking off a brand new season of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar by getting to know another fantastic guest conductor who will be joining us here in Kansas City for our first subscription weekend of 2022, Mr. Joshua Weilerstein. And his program is going to include Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, uh, the Gershwin Piano Concerto in F with John Kimura Parker, and William Grant Still's Poem. The concerts are going to be January 14th to the 16th, and you can purchase your tickets on our website, kcsymphony.org. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that weekend of concerts. Shostakovich 5 is a uh, particular favorite of mine. In addition to that, I'm looking forward in our conversation here in a few minutes to asking Josh about uh, his time in one of my own former orchestras, the New England Conservatory Youth Philharmonic. Uh, <laughs> I, I read that about him uh, preparing for this, and, and I thought, oh, he's he's another YPOer. So we're gonna we're gonna have to compare notes about that. But we'll learn all about his journey from Boston to the great concert halls of Europe, and what it's like to be part of a truly musical family, and how he too has become a prolific podcaster. Ooh, ooh. And of course, we'll have another edition of the gimmick taking the internet by storm our beethoven walks into a bar top five it's the top five prepare yourselves for the jingle (laughs) (laughs) so without any further ado i'm delighted to welcome today's guest josh weilerstein josh thanks so much for being here thanks so much great to be on with you guys so I'm excited to get to know you and, and chat with you a little bit today, all the way from London, right? Yeah. So I understand, though, that's not where you spent your holidays. I'm a little envious of, of where you're just coming from. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to over the holidays? Yeah, so I was doing sort of a combo of work and vacation. Um, I was in the Swiss Engadine, the Swiss Alps, uh, with this chamber orchestra called the Symphonia Engadina, and we did a concert with Mozart and Beethoven and a little bit of Michael Haydn on the side. Um, And then the final few days of that, just over New Year's, I was able to take a little bit of a vacation with my wife, and we we gallivanted all over the Swiss Alps a little bit, so that was really fantastic. I can't tell you the last time I gallivanted anywhere, let's just be honest. (laughs) Not much gallivanting during COVID time. (laughs) Well, that that was the great thing. It was so miraculous that the whole orchestra and, and I, luckily, we were negative the whole time through, and the audiences showed up, and it was, it was a it felt like a little Swiss Alp bubble in that in those few days. Nice. That sounds awesome. I just gallivanted around my living room. <laughs> so, Josh, is London home base for you then? Yeah, we've been living here for the last four years. Nice. What do you think are the biggest differences? I mean, obviously, you've conducted a lot in Europe, a lot in the United States. What do you think are the biggest differences between orchestras in the United States and Europe and conducting and just the overall rehearsal and performance procedures, et cetera. Any, any major differences or anything you've noticed? Um, I don't like to generalize too much because I think orchestras and musicians tend to have somewhat the same like needs and desires and, and, and ex- modes of expression all over the world. But I think one of the big differences that sort of comes as like a function of practicality is the, the amount of rehearsal time you get. Mm. Um, in Central Europe, you get a lot more rehearsal time than you do in the U.S. Um, for example, in Germany, you'll have 
four four hour rehearsals wow. over the course of the week and then a concert um, in Scandinavia. Almost every orchestra follows Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 10 until 2.30, 10 until 3 sometimes wow. with sectionals um, and then the concert, you know, one performance rather than multiple performances, which many American orchestras have. Um, and so, you know, there's obviously like a different sort of pace when it comes to that. American orchestras tend to come really well prepared for the first rehearsal because there's just not time to tackle everything. And sometimes when you go to even a great orchestra in Central Europe, you think like, what's what's going on? It's because people are sort of finding their way into the music um, and the level sort of grows and grows and grows and grows and you have to sort of manage that differently. So that's mm. the main thing that I, I think is different is that you just have to work at a different pace. When you're in the U.S., it's all about efficiency. And in Europe, there's a little bit more time to explore. Hmm. That's interesting. I like this whole showing up unprepared idea. That's very, <laughs> that's very innovative. Don't get any ideas, Mike. Don't no, don't ideas. worry. I, st I still show up unprepared. It's fine. You... <laughs> You play in an American orchestra, my friend. <laughs> Mike has never shown up unprepared for anything a day in his life. Yeah. I can assure you. Yeah, don't yeah. let him. Don't let him talk like that. Uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll go with that. So I, I, I'm curious for you to talk about, you know, what what led you uh, to this move, not only to to conducting so much in Europe, but to you know now living in Europe uh, after being with was that immediately after your time with the New York Phil? Um, not immediately, but if, uh, I was living in New York for a few years after that, and then we moved to London. Oh, okay. What specifically drew you there? Was that just a, a goal for you or something, uh, an opportunity that appeared? Well, I was working a lot in Europe. I had the um, orchestra in Lausanne in Switzerland that I was working with eight, eight weeks a year, um, and I was getting really burnt out flying back and forth all the time. And also, uh, my wife's family's from Israel, so we and I, my my family's in Boston, so we decided to make our families equally unhappy and be right in the middle. <laughs> um, and the other, and so we we settled on London because my wife is uh, works now for a domestic violence agency, and we she wanted to work in English um, and not have to deal with learning a, a whole another new language um, in in Germany or Holland, which were our other options. Um, so yeah, London became kind of the center base for us and, and we, we love it here. Nice. Nice. Well, you were, um, associate conductor of the New York Philharmonic and a position that I have here at the Kansas City Symphony, of course, but tell us a little bit about that experience. How long were you there? How did that help shape you as a musician and as a conductor? And how did you benefit from those experiences on the podium in New York that, that now serve you well as, as music director and guest conductor all over the place? Yeah, it was a really amazing experience. I, I was there for three years, um, and I worked with so many just incredible conductors um, and was able to sort of pick their brains uh, about, you know, how they were rehearsing, what, you know, I had a conversation with Christoph von Dachnani that I'll never forget about his family. Um, just, you know, during the middle of a rehearsal break, he starts talking about his his family's history with the Nazis, and it was just, mm -hmm. it was remarkable. It was really unfair. And then he walked out and conducted Schubert, and, you know, there was such a, an amazing connection wow. there. Um Working with Alan Gilbert was fantastic. And also, I mean, the main thing actually was working with the musicians because the New York Phil, when I first got there, the reputation was that they were a really tough orchestra. And actually, I mean, they probably won't like me to say this publicly. They're all such nice people. Like <laughs> such, such incredibly warm and helpful people, almost, you know, every one of them. And they were really open about feedback when I would ask them, you know, when I would conduct uh, young people's concerts and things like that. 
Um, they were so helpful and had such perceptive things to, to help me out with. And then they, I would also, of course, hear their commentary, both positive and negative, about the conductors who were doing the subscription weeks. And I would learn a lot from that. Um, and obviously also interesting to hear different opinions. I, I remember one week a conductor came and half the orchestra adored him and the other half hated him. Mm. And to hear their different perspectives on why uh, was was just really fascinating. So, you know, you just sort of gobble up all of this information and, and start using it as you go out into the the world of conducting a lot uh, professionally. Yeah, I think I think that's really great. I think it's, it's the point you made about learning from the musicians mm-hmm. is so true. I mean, I can't tell you the number of conversations I have off the podium with how how can I show this better or what do you think about this or especially when someone has a big solo in a piece or something like that, it's always great to talk off the podium as well mm-hmm. and really get to know where musicians are coming from and their ideas. And I, I just love that collaborative aspect of that type of position. Absolutely. I've, I've enjoyed. I think also being open, just being open to uh, the fact that, you know, there, there are people that you're working with who have done things more times than you have, or, you know, have right. have experienced them with, you know, a variety of different players or different conductors and, you know, bring their own experiences. I think, being open to that is hugely important when we're talking about music. Yeah, absolutely. I think some of the my my favorite experiences were were these bus rides out to run out concerts where I would sort of position myself near a musician who'd played in the orchestra for 40 years in some cases and they would just sort of you just get them going and then they would just be like a stream of stories about different things and some of them I remember a bass player she told me that Bernstein told the orchestra that the, th- the slow movement of Mahler four should sound like angels sitting on tombstones, mm. ah. and it was just this sort of the, you know she she it was like she had written the, these all of these down like in her memory all of these amazing right. comments that had happened and um, so that you know that that's you can't put a price on that kind of um, knowledge and 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 that kind of built up institutional knowledge of that of that orchestra and how much they knew and how much they had done. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think that relationship with the assistant conductor, you know, whoever whoever it is is really special in both directions because I, I we've talked about it on the podcast in various contexts I think um, over the last couple of years but you know that person is really in the trenches with the orchestra in a certain way that sometimes the music director is not actually. And depending on the the music director and the circumstances, that relationship can can vary. But I think with the assistant or associate conductor, you know, in a way, they're sort of always one of the band, right? And you really talk to them and and you can really have open and honest conversations about things. And I think I think that's really valuable um, for the musicians too, because I think I think it helps us learn about what can be difficult, you know, mm. in conducting and how we can be. Um, Helpful. I mean, I never try to be helpful for Jason, but for for his predecessors, <laughs> uh, occasionally. <laughs> but um, so I I want to change gears a little bit because you know the three of us being I would still consider us relatively uh, new podcasters are are humbled to be uh, in your presence because you actually <laughs> you actually have a, a podcast that I would consider to be relatively long running and it's something you actually started pre-pandemic it wasn't a you know I'm at home in my apartment with nothing to do I think I'll talk into this computer kind of situation <laughs> so I, I'm interested for you to to talk about that specifically you know why you went to the to the effort to start doing that at a at a time when you presumably didn't have all you know that free time that we had a little while ago, um, and also how how you see it as a tool to communicate about music. What makes it really important to you and important to your sort of journey as a musician? 
Yeah, I, I started the podcast in, I think, 2017. And basically, the inspiration of it was actually goes right back to Leonard Bernstein, because I, I've always admired watching his young people's concerts, um, which are by no means only for young people. They're also just as, as interesting for adults, too, I think. And um, watching how he sort of evangelized classical music. Um, and I thought, you know, what would Bernstein do if he was still alive hmm. to to continue? And he, I think he would use the internet and use podcasting. And so I thought, all right, well, I should start a podcast because at that time, there were almost no classical music podcasts. There were some orchestras were doing like a five or seven minute program note for the week that they called a podcast. Um, there was a, there were a couple of more comedic ones, but there wasn't any podcast that was you know, taking a long look at a single piece in a way that Bernstein used to do. And there's all these videos on YouTube of Bernstein describing pieces in these incredible ways. Um, and they're also, I, I discovered these CDs where the, the first part of the CD would be a recording of, say, Beethoven's Fifth, and then the second part would be Bernstein explaining Beethoven's Fifth. And so, you know, that, that's, where, that's where this started, basically, from there. Um, and I have been doing it now, yeah, basically four years without any stopping. Um, and it's been downloaded now almost three million times wow. in, wow. I think, like 160 countries nice. or something like that. So, you know, when I started it, I expected about 10 of my friends or family to say they listened to it. <laughs> and now, you know, it's, it's, gone, it's gone where it's gone. And I've gotten some really incredible emails from people who have essentially discovered classical music through it. So it's, it's uh, you know, you're asking about communication and that's, it, that's the main thing is just to find a way to not talk down to people at all, but also to demystify this music and to sort of come at it from a conductor's perspective, from a musician's perspective, um, talk to artists, go through these pieces in a really granular way um, while also being really accessible to anybody, even somebody who's never heard a symphony orchestra before. Yeah. I think you're, um, your thought about demystifying it. By the way, we should say your your podcast is called Sticky Notes. Oh yeah, I should, uh, and it's, I'm really bad at promoting it. <laughs> Obviously it's, it's not. Okay. We are we are too. So we'll promote yours. You promote ours. You know, it'll be fine. But and I highly recommend um, everyone check it out. But you had a a really interesting conversation. Speaking of demystifying, with a friend of mine, Aubrey Aubrey Bergauer. In the episode, though, you you told this uh, wonderful story about President Obama. And I forget all the details, but basically he was he was listening to a performance and he, he said something about uh, how the first lady would have to tell him when to clap. And you, you pointed out, uh, I think quite thoughtfully, you know, what does it say that the president of the United States feels somehow out of place or uncomfortable or mystified, you know, by this experience? And how do we expect others to connect with it? And I thought... I thought that was a really interesting point, but I, I, I want, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that, about how, you know, through your podcast, through, you know, different types of concerts or programming, you think about, you know, how can we get over this hump where people just feel comfortable to come and enjoy a concert? You know, it's there for them to be made comfortable and welcomed and to, you know, take what they will from it. Yeah. I, so I've had so many conversations with people when they see me like studying a score on a plane or, you know, on a, well, when we used to go inside to restaurants and things. <laughs> and um, they would say like, oh, I love classical music so much, but I, I, don't, I don't really get it. And I think there's something so profound in that. You know, how do you, you know, what other kinds of music do you say? Well, I love it, but I don't get it. If you don't get it, you usually don't love it, right? 
But a lot of people have this really positive association with classical music, but they might not have such a positive association or maybe have never gone to a concert before. Um, and I think it's about creating those kind of positive associations and just giving people the feeling that they're not stupid and that they understand that it's just music like any other music. With that said, classical music is tends to be longer than a lot of pop music. It's is somewhat more complex and there is a lot of historical baggage with it that you that is really helpful to know. You don't have to know it, but it always helps to get a little bit of background on something. And I think it's hard to make an experience really fun and engaging while also teaching people something. And that's, I think, obviously what I, and I keep coming back to Bernstein because that's what he was so amazing at was making education seem as exciting as the performance itself. Right. And so I think there's, there's an element of saying, this is what we do. We play this music and yes, it'll be, you'll be quiet the whole time. And yes, there's these, some, some bits of rules around it, but as soon as you know them, then it's just an enjoyable experience and you can sit back and kind of relax and 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 really enjoy this entire experience and and have also maybe not relax and have a really intense experience. I think we forget, obviously we're doing a program this next week that is very not relaxing no. <laughs> and it it is intense. It should grab you. And I think that's something that we, we have to portray as well. I mean, as you can tell by my sort of rambling answer to this, there's so many different directions to go in with this, but I think... It, I think it comes down to a, both asking people to come in and also saying, you're, you're not crazy to be a little bit taken aback, but here, let, we'll help you understand it. And then if you understand it, you're going to love it. Yeah. So I have, I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first one, as somebody who works in education a lot, I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm interested and passionate about creating experiences. The, the audiences that I create experiences for, likely it's their first experience with an orchestra. So I want to make sure that those experiences are not just positive, but, you know, are, are something that feel welcoming and not intimidating as possible, right? You know, so that's goal number one. And I love the idea of you talking about, you know, um, having even adult audiences, bringing them in and teaching them something while they're there. The struggle that I have there is, especially with adults, I feel like they, if they think that you're teaching them, they're more resistant to it. If it's a more like, you, do you know what I'm saying? If it, it can't be like luxury or, you know, I'm, I'm smarter than you about this. You know, I know so much about this and I'm going to, I'm going to teach you about this. It has to be organic and feel organic. And I think that's a way that Bernstein really succeeded was it was just very accessible. And, you know, here's, I love this music and I, I happen to know a lot about it and I love it so much that I really want you to, to know about it. So you love it too. And I think that approach to it is really where the, where the sweet spot is. I think there's also a lot of stories that can be told about so many different pieces that mm -hmm. just bring people in. I mean, Shostakovich 5, what a great example of a, of a story that is so incredibly compelling. Um, but, you know, Beethoven's story, not just the deafness, but his political, um, his whole relationship with music and politics is so fascinating. Um, Schumann and his struggles with mental illness. And, you know, there's so many different ways of connecting people personally to something and then saying, well, here's how the music that they use to express it. Yeah. And or to say completely the opposite, you know, Tchaikovsky writing his most dark and depressive pieces at a moment where he actually was quite, I mean, for him, happy. And, you know, there, there's also a time where music and um, music and personal circumstances completely have a disconnect. Um, and so that's also interesting. So there's so many different angles, I think, to just 
open people's ears a little bit. And as you said, to to sort of have them learn without realizing they're learning <laughs> is is the best part, you know. I do have um, a, just another question. And I think this is a question for everybody. But we talk about, um, you know, creating accessibility. And uh, we've done a lot of work through that. Um, we've talked a lot about on the podcast about our mobile music box, which is a actual vehicle that takes um, music out into the community. And we were doing that as a product of COVID and, the, and everything being closed down. But it has since become, you know, more of a staple of just our programming throughout the community. And but in that discussion, and in doing that, we've talked a lot about, quote, unquote, barriers and using that as a tool to break down those barriers. But I'm curious, from Josh and Jason and Mike, like, if we could demystify just like two or three thoughts or, you know, these quote unquote barriers, like what would they be like, what could we, what could we demystify right now? I mean, like the thought of, for me, you know, the, the one thing is I have to, uh, I have to dress up to come to the symphony, you know, the symphony is fancy and I need to, you know, have sequins and tuxedo and all of that to come to the symphony. Obviously not true. You can show up in blue jeans, you can show up, you know, however you are and enjoy. It's all about listening. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on something there, which is that I think a lot of the times we worry that the music is the problem and, you know, it's too long, it's boring, it's, you know, too much of the past or too much of the present for depending on who, which audience you're talking to, (laughs) Um, you know, and I think that is nine times out of 10, not the problem. I think the problem is, is, if there is a problem, it's that people just don't, you know, you imagine going somewhere where you've never gone before. You don't know the rules and you don't know how things work. And I think, you know, I, of course, I totally agree with you. And I, and I, you know, in terms of what people wear, what, you know, when to clap, that was the whole story with the, yeah. with o- Obama was that he didn't know whether he should clap like at the end of a piece or between movements. And, you know, there's been, it's almost like so built up now that it's become like this, this, complex for everybody. Oh, should I clap? Should I not? And, you know, when we're thinking about composers from 250 years ago, who we worship so much, if if we played a Mozart symphony after the first movement, nobody clapped, Mozart would have thought it was the mo- biggest failure of his entire career. Mm-hmm. Um, Tchaikovsky would have been horrified that we don't clap now at the end of the first movement of the violin concerto. Um, you know, these, there's some of these rules that partly are to Mahler is to blame for some of these instituting some of these rules have have were not these sort of rules that came down from on high. They came in about a hundred and hundred years ago, and we've just kept them. And some of them, you know, I don't I don't like it personally when at the end of a really soft, slow movement, you know, people start clapping. You know, mm-hmm. but I think I remember talking with somebody who said, just trust people, and they will. People will react how they are moved by the music, and. You know, if you told the audience you can clap whenever you want, I think they would clap in all the right places. And I think that's, again, just giving people the respect to say, like, you actually do know what you're doing here. You're, you're, not, you're not in a foreign environment. I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that, you know, sometimes you want to clap. It feels awkward not to clap, like you mentioned at the end of the first movement of the Chike Concerto or the Brahms Concerto or the, the end of the third movement of Tchaikovsky Symphony Number no. 6. I mean, if you don't clap, it it feels very unnatural. So maybe take your cues from the people around you. But I also think that those people around you, you know, people that are regular symphony goers, 
should be a little bit more tolerant and patient with people when they do clap at a moment that perhaps, or they do react in a way that perhaps you might not see as traditional or whatever. Because I think a lot of times people are intimidated because they go once maybe, and someone shoots them a glare when they unwrap a cough drop or they clap in the quote unquote wrong place. So I think audience members are just as responsible for helping new people feel comfortable as the orchestra and the staff and everyone else. So just experiencing everything together as a community and realizing there's no right or wrong, I think is a big part of it as well. Yeah, back in Boston, uh, when I was a student, the um, NEC, the New England Conservatory, would, would give these really cheap tickets out to the matinee concerts at BSO. And I remember there was a concert, I don't remember what the overture was, but then it was Brahm, uh, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto and Brahms Four. And the end of the overture, everybody clapped. And then at the end of the first movement of the Tchaikovsky, everybody actually, in that case, clapped, which I was really kind of pleasantly surprised by. And I was looking around and I noticed there were a lot of schools there at that concert that day. Mm. Um, and then, so they just figured, and also there's no um, stopping between the second and third movements of the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto. So at the end of the third movement, everybody clapped again. So by their assumption, you just clap when the music stops, right? And so at the end of the first movement of Brahms 4, another really exciting movement, a lot of the kids started clapping. And the amount of shushes that I heard, I was like, that's it. We just lost about 350 kids mm. who are now like, oh, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And that's not to necessarily blame audience members. I get why people like traditions. There's, and some traditions are good. Some, you know, some can be changed. But I think what I like to emphasize to people who are really sort of militant about applause and, and what people wear is that this is not something that was always the case. This is the last hundred years. And then, sorry, just to add one other thing to it is that composers started changing how they wrote based on that too. For example, I don't think Shostakovich would have expected people to clap between these movements in the Fifth Symphony, while, again, Beethoven probably would have expected people to be talking throughout his symphonies, mm. like throughout every, you know, while the music was playing. So, it's also about talking about how different eras of music had different expectations. Next time we're playing Beethoven 7 during the march or something, we'll just encourage people to talk. <laughs> <laughs> during yeah, the talk, third repetition talk, of the scherzo. Yeah, talk, talk, talk yeah, to your neighbor yeah. while we finish this. <laughs> Chat amongst yourselves. <laughs> Chat amongst yourselves. <laughs> well, Josh, I'm curious um, because you've grown up in clearly in a musical family. Your sister, Elisa, is a well-known cellist. Uh, your father was a founding member of the Cleveland Quartet. Your mom has her own vibrant career as a pianist. Um, your parents are both sought-after teachers. Was it always a... We here in Kansas City, we're very familiar with with that kind of setting in our with our music director, uh, Mr. Stern. Um, but And so we've asked him this question too, but was it always a foregone conclusion that you would follow suit in the in the family business of music or how did how did that come about for you um no it wasn't a foregone conclusion i was very much going to be the the different one i wasn't going to do music mm. um i wanted to be a baseball player and then when i realized i was not a very good baseball player i wanted to be a sportscaster and i think that's actually mm. to go back to the podcast why i like doing the podcast so much is it gets my <laughs> sportscasting urge out um so do you I, do you by yeah. the way i hate to interrupt do you no. know our friend aram demergen you must <laughs> aram is one of my closest <laughs> friends in the whole world so oh, you guys so must great. just talk baseball when you get together the whole time exactly yeah <laughs> aram and aram and i are best buddies and we have a text message thread that's been gone going for 
we we were actually uh, students together at NEC in the conducting uh-huh. program. So oh, okay. we were we were we just became really great friends there. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I was I played the violin, but sort of I mean not sort of very casually. I like to say that I practiced. 25 minutes a day, five days a week, three seasons a year, because in the summer, <laughs> that was it. Um, and I I liked music, but I didn't, you know, seek out concerts or anything like that. And so when I was 14, uh, my parents and I moved to Boston, and I had no friends because we had just moved. And so I was convinced to join uh, the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra, which was um, the, or- the youth orchestra at NEC. And um, all of a sudden just something started clicking. Um, and we went on a tour to Panama and Guatemala and we played for thousands of kids who had never seen a Ooh. symphony orchestra before. Uh, we went to the tiniest towns all over the country, these two countries. And, um, I remember Ben Zander, our conductor would bound onto the stage and say, who, how many of you have never heard a symphonic orchestra before? And then it would get translated and they'd all whisper to each other. And then 2000 hands would fly up into the air. And this was so exciting to me. I think partly because I had grown up around music my whole life and I barely knew anybody that hadn't heard classical music before. And all of a sudden I'm surrounded by kids who are screaming at the end of La Valse that they're so excited. They've never heard anything like this before. Um, So that really like set the light bulb off for me that I wanted to be more interested in music. That same summer, I went to the Greenwood Music Camp in Massachusetts, um, which was a chamber music camp and played every great quartet under the sun. And so that really um, locked it in for me that I wanted to become a musician. And then real briefly, just talk about your path from becoming a a conductor eventually. You know, you started out as a violinist, of course. What got you excited and interested in conducting? Um, I think it was always interested in in conducting watching how Ben Zander worked with the orchestra and and sort of his his mm-hmm. inspirational abilities and then when I got to NEC uh, our conductor my freshman year was Ludovic Morlot who uh, mm. was at the time the assistant conductor of the Boston Symphony and he took the job the the very very um, uh, not unforgiving that's not the word I'm looking for um, mm-hmm. Uh, thankless job let's thankless. There you go. Of, of conducting the freshman orchestra at NEC. <laughs> and nice. um, he worked with us so hard. I mean, he was so dedicated. And I, he, he was the sort of the first really practical conductor that I'd ever worked with. Um, someone with this amazing technique. And he was able to, you know, communicate so many ideas just physically. And I was really impressed by that. And so I went up to him and said, you know, I'm kind of interested in becoming a conductor, do you, you know, do you have any tips? And he said, just go to the library and watch as many videos as you can. And so I went to the NEC CD library, which I don't even know if it exists anymore, and um, took out a video of Carlos Kleiber conducting Brahms's Second Symphony. And I Good watched choice. it. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember taking it out <laughs> and this guy standing next to me was like, have you seen that before? And I said, no. He said, it's going to change your life. And I watched it, and I saw him a week later, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "You were you were right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it did it did change my life." And for, you know, I'd never seen someone work in that way with an orchestra before. This sort of just constant music making um, and elegance and everything that cl- makes Kleiber such a fantastic conductor. And so that was sort of it for me, and I became really interested in starting to conduct. Yeah, you know, your story about YPO, the, the Youth Philharmonic at NEC, it, it resonates with me incredibly because in, in so many ways that was 
that was kind of the spark for me too. Uh, I, I played in the same orchestra probably a few years before you, but the tour we went on and, and we had a very parallel experience actually, but we went to Cuba and Mexico actually with, with Chostakovich five, which you're going to be conducting oh. here. And this is, this is the first, my first experience with that piece was playing it, you know, several times in Boston first, you know, to get ready. And then, uh, and then in Mexico and Cuba, and it was kind of a similar deal. You know, we played it at this at this old, really decrepit opera theater in somewhere in Cuba, somewhere outside of Havana. I couldn't tell you where anymore. <laughs> and it was the same thing. You know, he and especially at the time, there were really sensitive political overtones uh, being in Cuba, playing that piece there. And he was he was Xander was very thoughtful about the way he presented it. But it was the same same kind of thing. And it it was absolutely life-changing for me, honestly. So it's it's amazing to hear you talk about that and learn that we share that connection. And by the way, I, I run into people all over the universe, and I'm sure you do too, who've played in that same orchestra with Ben Zander. I mean, what a what an influential figure um, in the musical world. But all of that is important, but we have something else that's more important, actually. <laughs> and uh, for anyone who listens to our podcast uh, that knows that there are Two questions we have to ask every guest. It's in the fine print. If you read your contract carefully, you would have seen it, but you probably didn't. And and these important two questions are are as follows. Number one, what would you ask Beethoven if you could ask Beethoven anything? And number two, if you were having this conversation with Beethoven in your favorite watering hole or cafe or wherever you might procure beverages, alcoholic, non-alcoholic, or otherwise, what what might be your favorite beverage to have with Beethoven? Um, I'm such a, I'm so boring with this, but I think like just the gin and tonic. That's not boring. The There's nothing wrong with that. It's classic. Um, yeah, there we go. Classic. That's what I, that's, that's all. I'll say that next time. Um, I always joke around because I go to these post-concert dinners often and I'm, I'm a vegan who doesn't really drink. And so I'm like Mr. Boring. I'm like, yeah, party animal. <laughs> you know, that's um, that's what we're going to call this podcast. Is Josh Weilerstein a vegan who doesn't really drink? That's the title. <laughs> perfect, <Done>. perfect. <laughs> um, but in terms of the question, um, I mean, this is a, again very dorky, but I would ask him about his metronome markings, and because mm-hmm. there's all these fights about whether he really meant them or not, or did he really mean to put things so fast sometimes and so slow other times. Um, and I'd really love to know from him, from him directly, whether he really wanted those to be followed to the letter or somewhat, you know, because every composer was slightly different, but apparently he was quite fanatical about people following what he wanted. But I don't know if that stretched all the way to metronome markings. So that would be the question I'd ask him. Yeah. Nothing spiritual, just what are your metronome markings like? (laughs) (laughs) Down to business. And especially as he became more deaf and didn't get to hear the music in reality as much, Mm -hmm. what... Would he have changed some of them? You know, when once he realized that that's pretty much unplayable at that tempo, or just sounds too frantic, or whatever. I think that's a great, great question that many of us would have for him. What What's interesting about that is that everybody rightly talks about all the fast tempos, but actually, the last movements of the fifth and seventh symphonies, yeah. if you follow the metronome markings, are quite a bit slower than they're normally <laughs> done. So Absolutely. it doesn't always go to the fast side. Um, which I find really interesting. And again, I would love to ask him about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, Josh, thank you so much for taking time today to talk with us all the way from London. Um, We're so much looking forward to your concerts next week here in Kansas City. 
Uh, the program, once again, includes Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony, Gershwin's Piano Concerto in F with John Kamura Parker and William Grant Still's Poem. The concerts are January 14th through the 16th, and you can purchase your tickets either on our website at kcsymphony.org or if you're old school, you can call the box office. Either way, we'll hook you up with some good tickets. Uh, Josh, before we wrap up here, though, we do have one more very important piece of business left to attend to. It's the top five. 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 Yes, it is the top five. Earlier in our conversation, we talked about your very musical family, and we mentioned that, of course, our music director, Michael Stern, has a very musical family with his dad, Isaac being a world-renowned violinist, his brother is a is a fantastic opera conductor. There are many examples of influential musical families in the classical music world, especially, I think. So I thought it'd be fun today if we each give our top five most influential musical families outside of the Weilersteins and the Sterns. <laughs> That's two of <laughs> because my of five. Because, of course, because those two would be the very top. But uh, do you have, we'll start with you, Josh. Do you have uh, some great examples of influential musical families? Yeah, I hope I didn't take all of the, the most famous ones. But um, That's all right. Well, obviously, I think probably at the top of everybody's list is Bach. Mm-hmm. Um, his his many sons. all, And I always love the trivia that C.B.E. Bach, his one of his 20 children was much more popular than Johann Sebastian in the time that they were both alive. Um, <laughs> C.P. Bach was the more well-known composer, obviously not the case now, um, but obviously so, <laughs> so incredibly influential. Um, the Schumanns, both Robert and Clara, um, sparked, I mean, had their own wonderful music, both of them. And Robert was, again, more famous at the time for being a music critic and sparked the career of Brahms, started the whole war of the romantics between himself and Wagner and Brahms and Wagner. And so obviously incredibly influential and Clara's, uh, Clara Schumann's playing and wonderful compositions as well. Uh, the Mendelssohn's similar case, Felix and Fanny Mendelssohn, both ex- incredible musicians um, and composers. And then of course they were also related to Moses Mendelssohn, who was the legend outside of music, the legendary rabbi Moses Mendelssohn. Um, and then uh, one Slightly less, maybe more off the beat, uh, Joseph and Michael Haydn. Um, Michael Haydn, Joseph's brother, was obviously much, much, much less famous than Joseph, but Mozart admired his music. And uh, if you really want to get into it, listen to the last movement of Mozart's Jupiter Symphony, number 41, then listen to Michael Haydn's 28th Symphony, the last movement, and you'll hear, and I'll say that Haydn wrote his first. That's all I'll say about that. Oh, interesting. Um, interesting. And then the last one. Yeah. Can sorry. I interrupt there? Sorry, because I wanted to, I'm going to make an, an embarrassing admission, but it's not embarrassing because we're all here learning together. <laughs> I did not know um, about Michael Haydn. I didn't know that they were brothers. I, did, I didn't know anything about him until um, our mobile music box series was going and we were doing all this chamber music and one of our string trios uh, performed a 
a, a trio of his or a couple of movements from a trio of his. And I loved it. And, you know, they introduced it as Michael Haydn. And I was like, I don't understand what you're saying. So <laughs> I, we're, we all learn things all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he was a very talented composer. And there was a symphony of Mozart's that was attributed to Mozart for a long time that was apparently actually by Michael what? Haydn. Um, and the last the last one is just, it's based on being immersed in Shostakovich right now. It's the Sanderling family. Oh, yeah. um, Kurt Sanderling, the incredible German conductor who knew Shostakovich and has an incredible interpretation of the very end of the piece, which I'll be trying to to do a bit of in, in, our, in our week together. Um, and then his sons who are... Um, Two of his sons, who are both absolutely fantastic conductors in their own right. So, the, an influential 20th century family. Very cool. Nice. Nice. Very cool. All right, I'll go next. My top five is also Bach, of course. You have Johann Sebastian, Johann Christian, CPE, even PDQ, if you want to throw him in there. <laughs> lots, of, lots of influential Bachs throughout the, the centuries, of course. Uh, I have the Strausses because you have all the different Johann, Senior, Junior, Edvard, and of course some of them are related, some of them are not. Rickhart, of course, uh, but the Strauss, the Strauss name, maybe <laughs> instead of the Strauss family, the Strauss name is one of the most influential names in musical history. Um, I'm going to go pretty modern, just like you did with uh, the Sanderlings for my last three. I have the Newmans because you have. Alfred Newman, yes. uh, who, of course, was one of the, the great film composers in the Hollywood golden age. But, of course, now you have Randy Newman and Thomas Newman, who are also really wonderful uh, composers, especially for film and conductors uh, in their own right. Um, and my last two are also conducting examples, since I'm a conductor. So the Yarvies, the Yarvies with Nema Yarvi and Pavo Yarvi and Christian Yarvi, all amazing conductors. And uh, Josh, you already mentioned earlier in the episode by number five, and these are in no particular order, of course, the Clibers. Carlos Kleiber is probably my favorite conductor of all time. Me too. Uh, and, and, and I had similar experiences with you watching some of his performances as a student and just being transformed. And of course, his father, Eric Kleiber, was a really wonderful conductor as well. So I'd have to put the Kleibers in my top five. Stephanie, what do you got? Well, I too uh, started with Bach, <laughs> the Bachs. <laughs> the um, I also had uh, the Mozart family on my list. Um, it's kind of fresh in my head right now because my kids and I are recently back from a trip down to Texas and we always uh, check out audiobooks. And we're reading this series called The 39 Clues. And the whole second book is, a, is uh, about searching for clues throughout Mozart's life. And so we, we talk a lot about um, Mozart and Nennerl and uh, it, fresh in my head. The Strausses are on my list. All the Strausses, even Ricard, even though he's not a, a Johann. Or <laughs> but then uh, Jason also, uh, the Newmans are on my list. So nice. I am a huge fan of uh, Thomas and Randy Newman. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption soundtrack is like, genius to me and I love it so much. <laughs> I think I've that said that on here before. Genius. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I did a more modern um, sibling duo um, with Anthony and Damari McGill. Um, it's just me as a woodwind player. And, uh, you know, you can't listen to clarinet music without thinking of Anthony or flute music, right? And without thinking of Damari and uh, uh, just amazing gentlemen and careers and awesome example of families in classical music. 
Well, uh, I, not surprisingly, have a little bit of overlap. I mean, you you can't make this without including uh, Bach and Mozart. So we've talked enough about Bach and Mozart, but you know, <laughs> we can't we can't all be Bach and Mozart. Um, so, uh, so I I kind of wanted to include uh, figures from different eras in this list because um, I think it's interesting how this this keeps happening. Um, and so, so my next one would be the Gershwins, who were, oh, of course, nice. incredibly uh, influential in music in general, particularly in the American musical tradition. The Abados, as in Claudio and his other conductor brother, uh, Roberto. And I learned that they actually have another brother, uh, Marcello, I think his name is, who uh, who's a pianist. But anyway, a- another very mm-hmm. musical family. And uh, heralded, of course, and then and then my last one is a family I actually just learned about, but they're absolutely incredible. Um, they're this this family uh, called the the Kenna Masons, and they are a family of I think it's seven siblings, all of whom mm-hmm. are incredibly accomplished classical musicians. And I, I learned about them, and I started watching some of their stuff. and And to be honest, my my first discovery of them was a clip from them being on Britain's Got Talent, which, to be perfectly honest, made me think, oh, this is, I mean, okay, fine. But actually, I mean, they have, they record with top labels. I mean, they sound incredible. Each one of them plays either the violin, the piano, the cello, or in some cases, both. Or I don't know if anyone plays all three. I don't know if any of them play all three. Anyway, um, their uh, their parents, I believe, are from uh, Sierra Leone, but they grew up in Wales, and they are just phenomenally talented and youthful and energetic musicians. and uh, And I look forward to what's to come from them as they uh, continue their careers. They're they're all I think they're all in their twenties, uh, but just incredibly accomplished and creative. They are <laughs> huge stars over here in the UK. I bet. Are they? They, <laughs> they well, Sheku played at uh, the the Harry and Meghan wedding, and you became a sort of a superstar from that. Um, but they're great. They're they're also incredibly nice people, and um, I've worked with a couple of them, and they're they're great. Um, and it's really a, a remarkable family. That's very cool. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Joshua. We we really look forward to seeing you soon here in Kansas City, and we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us here on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. Thanks so much. Had a great time. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar in whatever platform you listen to us. And we hope to see you at a concert very soon. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, we chat with rising American composer Joel Thompson, Joel is currently known for his piece for men's voices, piano and strings, The Seven Last Words of the Unarmed. He's quickly making a name for himself across the country. We chat about the role the arts play in healing, how music serves as a vehicle for social change, and Joel's upcoming visit to Kansas City when the orchestra performs his newest work, To Awaken the Sleeper, next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar.